Capital One has a fresh take on banking. Now you can open a new savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Banking with Capital One means five times the savings toward your dream honeymoon, or five times the savings toward your family's ultimate vacation, even five times the savings toward just feeling good about saving. It's time to make your savings goals come true. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. You're listening to Editor's Picks. I'm Zanny Minton Beddoes, Editor in Chief of The Economist. Each week, we choose three articles to give you a taste of the latest news and analysis from our pages. They're read aloud so you can listen on the go, wherever you are. Over to one of my colleagues to introduce this week's stories. Thanks, Zanny. It's the 27th of September 2019. I'm Josie Delap, International Editor of The Economist. Coming up, our cover package this week looks at the reckoning facing both Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. In Britain, we lead with the Supreme Court ruling that the recent suspension of Parliament was unlawful. You can hear more on this and the options now facing Britain in The Intelligence, our daily current affairs podcast. In the rest of the world, we examine the promise and perils of impeachment. The decision by the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, to begin hearings into Mr Trump's conduct will not necessarily lead to impeachment. But one thing seems certain, it will further divide a country that is already set against itself. Next, China's repression of Islam is spreading. Millions more Muslims are being targeted by the Communist Party. And finally, proof has emerged that a quantum computer can outperform a classical one. These are just a sample of the stories in this week's paper. With a subscription, you can read or listen to all of what we do, so please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. First up, the promise and the perils of impeachment. America almost didn't have a president. The men who arrived at the Constitutional Convention in 1787 brought with them a horror of monarchy. Absent a figure of George Washington's stature, the young country might have adopted a parliamentary system of government. Yet, having created the office, the founders had to devise a way to remove presidents who abuse their positions. Not all people are Washingtons. They defined the mechanism. An impeachment vote in the House, followed by a trial in the Senate. The question of what exactly a president should be impeached for, treason, bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanours, was deliberately left to Congress. Hence, though impeachment is a constitutional provision, it is also a political campaign. That campaign began in earnest this week, when Nancy Pelosi directed her Democratic colleagues in the House to begin impeachment hearings into President Donald Trump. This will not necessarily lead to impeachment. In the past, though, impeachment hearings have generated a momentum of their own. The process is fraught with risks on both sides. One thing seems certain. The process will further divide a country that is already set against itself. Ms Pelosi has taken such a momentous step because she believes the president's behaviour towards Ukraine's government crossed a line. If that seems an obscure reason to contemplate unseating a president, 
Remember that impeachment proceedings against Richard Nixon had their origins in an office burglary, and the ones against Bill Clinton began with an affair with an intern. Mr Trump appears to have let Ukraine's government know that relations with America, including the supply of aid, depended on its pursuing an investigation into the family of a political rival. That would be more serious than a break-in or a fling. It would mean that the president had subverted the national interest to pursue a political vendetta. The federal government often gives foreign powers promises of aid in exchange for doing something that America wants them to do. The Ukraine case is different. America has an interest in ensuring that Ukraine is able to defend itself against Russian aggression, which is why Congress came up with a package of $391 million in military aid for its newly elected government. Mr Trump acted against the national interest in putting that aid on hold while pressing Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president, to investigate Hunter Biden, who had business dealings in Ukraine and is the son of the Democratic front-runner Joe Biden. If that were not clear enough, Mr Trump also sent his personal lawyer to meet an advisor to Mr Zelensky and repeat the message. In a country as corrupt and vulnerable as Ukraine, the link between American support and investigating the Bidens, you give us dirt on Joe and we'll give you weapons and money, did not need to be explicit to be understood. I also want to ensure you that we will be very serious about the case and will work on the investigation, Mr Zelensky told Mr Trump in a call on July 25th. You might have thought that the Mueller investigation into his campaign's dealings with Russia would have made Mr Trump wary of dallying with foreign governments. It seems not. His conduct looks a lot like bribery or extortion. And to use taxpayer funds and the might of the American state to pursue a political enemy would count as an abuse of power. The founders wanted impeachment to be a practical option, not just a theoretical one. Otherwise, the president would be above the law, a monarch sitting on a throne for four or eight years. Declining to impeach Mr Trump would set a precedent for future presidents. Anything up to and including what the 45th president has done to date would be fair game. Republican partisans should consider to what depths a future Democratic president thus emboldened could stoop. It would also signal to America's allies and foes that snooping on Americans who are influential or might become so was a fine way to curry favour with the president. There would be no need for the dirt even to be true. Russia and China, are you listening? Such are the risks of ducking impeachment. Yet the risks on the other side of pressing forward are great too. Voters expect impeachment to be a last resort, not a trick by one party to remove a president from the other or a means for the losers of an election to frustrate its result. House Democrats risk looking self-indulgent as rather than getting on with fixing infrastructure or health care, they obsess over the minutiae of internal White House communications. The hearings may spin out of control and make Democratic politicians seem ineffectual and obsessive, as the stonewalling testimony of a former Trump aide, Corey Lewandowski, did last week. The hearings may also be too confusing and rancorous for the public to follow.
even if the House did decide to impeach Mr Trump, it is highly unlikely that he would be found guilty by the two-thirds majority needed in the Senate, where Republicans hold 53 of 100 seats. Legally, Mr Biden Jr.'s sleazy dealings in Ukraine have no bearing on whether Mr Trump abused his office. Politically, though, the two are linked, because they give Republican senators minded to defend Mr Trump a handy set of talking points. A failed impeachment that leaves Mr Trump in office might not be much of a deterrent to this president or to a future one. In fact, it might even help Mr Trump, who could argue that he had been found innocent after a partisan witch hunt by loser Democrats. Until this week, that was the calculus of Ms Pelosi and House Democrats from competitive districts. It is not clear that public opinion has yet shifted enough to change the equation. Though it may be bravado, Mr Trump's campaign team has always insisted that the more Democrats talk about impeachment, the better it is for the President's chances of re-election in 2020. Faced with such a daunting choice, Ms Pelosi had until now held back. But Mr Trump appears to be becoming more brazen as re-election draws near. The President's behaviour needs investigating, with the extra authority that the impeachment process confers. Better, therefore, to lean towards principle than pragmatism. But it is a risky and perilous path. What do bioscience and big data have to do with Iowa? More than you probably think. Iowa invites you to discover career opportunities in today's most cutting-edge industries. From startups to establishments, businesses across the state are pairing new technology with daring ideas, investing in bold visionaries, supporting driven doers, establishing the workforce of tomorrow today. This is Iowa. Don't limit your dream job to the imagination. Make it happen here. Explore Iowa for yourself at thisisiowa.com. Next, China's repression of Islam is spreading. As darkness begins to settle on Duanjiaping village, a few men in white skull caps head towards a large mosque. It is time for the Maghrib, the fourth of the five daily prayers of devout Muslims. It is clear, even before they reach the building's high yellow walls, that all is not right. The prayer hall's four minarets, topped by golden crescent moons, are still a towering landmark, but they are covered in scaffolding and green netting, and they are not due for repair. It is less than six years since hundreds of Muslim men gathered in the mosque's courtyard to celebrate the completion of its new Arab-style prayer hall. It had cost 9.8 million yuan, that's $1.37 million, a tidy sum in a county that is officially classified as impoverished. The festivities had official blessing. The imam of one of the most important mosques in Lanzhou, the provincial capital, was there. So too was a senior leader of the government-backed Islamic Association of China. Much has changed. A chill political wind has been blowing over Duanjiaping and hundreds of other villages and towns in Linsha, a majority Muslim prefecture in Gansu province, which borders on the Tibetan Plateau and the far western region of Xinjiang. Many villages in Linsha have at least one mosque, with minarets visible far and wide. 
The one with the scaffolding in Duanjia Ping can accommodate 3,000 worshippers. Its grandeur is not unusual. In recent decades, rural communities in Linxia, China's Little Mecca, as it is often called, have vied to outdo each other in mosque building. Now the government is not only reining them in, it is tightening controls on their faith as well. The horrors of China's campaign against Islam in Xinjiang are well known. About two years ago, reports began to emerge of the building of a vast gulag there. Hundreds of thousands of ethnic Uyghurs have been thrown into it, many simply for seeming too pious. There are about 10 million Uyghurs in China, but they form only about half of the country's Muslim population. Linshar is home to more than 1.1 million Muslims, mainly belonging to two ethnic groups, the Wei and the Dongxiang. There are Muslim communities scattered widely across the rest of China. Most are made up of Hues. Because of Xinjiang's history of separatism and terrorism, Uyghurs are suffering by far the harshest clampdown experienced by any of these Muslim groups. Outside Xinjiang, however, other believers are starting to feel the effects too. The government's attitude towards Muslims in the interior began to change in 2016, after China's leader Xi Jinping set out plans for the sinicization of the country's religions. Christianity and Islam, having strong overseas connections, became the main targets. Officials set out to purge them of foreign influences deemed threatening to the Communist Party. In the case of Islam, the aim was partly to prevent the spread of radicalism, and with it, terrorism. Among Muslims elsewhere in China, however, there have been no reports of terrorist links. The Hues were once China's model Muslims, quite unlike the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, who have chafed at Chinese rule for decades. A few Uyghurs have occasionally used violence to vent their grievances. The Hues have no separatist ambitions. They claim descendancy from Arab and Persian traders who settled more than a millennium ago. After centuries of intermarriage, they have become ethnically assimilated with Han Chinese, who make up more than 90% of the population. Hues in Linxia have historically played an important role as middlemen in trade between Tibetan and Han communities. Many have grown rich by trading a Chinese medicine that is often used as an aphrodisiac, known as caterpillar fungus. It is harvested from the Tibetan hills. Linshar is home to one of the country's biggest caterpillar fungus wholesale markets. Its traders are mostly Muslims. But as the scaffolding in Duanjiaping shows, the government worries that Muslims in Linshar are absorbing the same influences from Islam abroad that it says have fueled strife in Xinjiang. Right now, work related to Islam is even more complicated than it has ever been before, Gansu's party chief Lin Duo told a meeting of senior officials in July last year. One aim of the Sinicization campaign is to reduce visible links between Islam in China and that in the Arab world. China fears that Saudi Arabia, in particular, as much a draw to Muslim pilgrims in China as to those elsewhere, will poison Chinese Islam with Wahhabism, a puritanical strain that is often linked with extremism. But its efforts to prevent this are affecting many Muslims who have no truck with militancy. 
In March, officials in the southern city of Guangzhou announced rewards of up to 10,000 yuan, that's $1,405, for reporting on illegal religious activities, including organizing private trips to Mecca. China's Muslims can join only officially arranged ones. The mosque in Duanjiaping is a casualty. Officials have ordered it to remove its Arab-style minarets and replace them with Chinese-looking ones. A picture of what the mosque will eventually look like is displayed in the entrance. The minarets will have green-tiled upturned eaves in Chinese style. The central bulbous dome will be replaced by a pavilion-like structure, also classically Chinese. The government says we have to do it, so we're doing it, says a caretaker. The work will not offend religious sensibilities and will be done at the government's expense, he claims. That contrasts with the reports from other places where similar work is being carried out. In a nearby town, Kangle, a nervous Hui, surveys another mosque with scaffolding on its minarets. He says trouble broke out there a few days earlier when local religious affairs officials ordered their demolition. They were erected in 2014. The following year, the mosque was named a model religious site by Lin Xia's government. No longer, it seems. In August last year, there was trouble on a much bigger scale in Ningxia Hui Autonomous Region, a province bordering on Gansu that is home to about one-fifth of China's Hui people. For three days, thousands of Muslims in the town of Weizhou staged protests at a massive mosque, initially over a government order that the entire building be knocked down because it had not received planning permission, and subsequently over a revised proposal that only the domes be removed. Remarkably, the local government backed down, but it was clearly worried about the turmoil. In November, the party chief of Ningxia visited Xinjiang, where he signed counter-terrorism cooperation agreements, he noted religious similarities between the two provinces and said ominously, that's why Ningxia went to learn from Xinjiang. In Gansu, the official Islamic association has circulated 20 recommended designs for mosque roofs with Chinese characteristics. Officials say they want no more Saudiization or Arabization of buildings. The association has instructed Muslims to forsake the common practice of building or expanding mosques without government permission and to make them less vast and extravagant. It has also tried to tighten its control over the religion itself. It has ordered Gansu's teachers of Islam to reject any new doctrine from outsiders. Anything that does not already exist at home should not be accepted from abroad, said the association's annual report, published in March. If something does not exist locally, then it should not be approved if it is introduced from elsewhere, the report said. Part of the sinicization effort is called the Four Enter campaign. This means ensuring that four things are introduced into every mosque, the Chinese flag, propaganda concerning China's laws on religion, core socialist values and the country's outstanding traditional culture. In Lingxia, the impact is clear. The flag flies over many mosques. Billboards proclaiming socialism's importance to Islam fill their courtyards. Preachers have been told to incorporate these values in their scriptural teachings and they must undergo regular testing on such matters to retain their permits to teach. 
Lin Sha's party chief, Guo He Li, tried to put a positive spin on the clampdown during a visit to local mosques in June. We must reduce the frequency, duration and scale of religious activities, he said, suggesting this would lessen the burden on the faithful. The authorities are also trying to reduce Islam's influence in society. In Ling Shah, this involves curbing the proliferation of the use of the term halal. Provincial officials have accused Lin Shah's main city of giving too much prominence to religious aspects in its plans to expand the local halal products industry. As part of the de-Arabization campaign, officials have ordered restaurants to stop using the word halal in Arabic on their signs, as many once did. Only traces now remain. On many Muslim restaurants across China, including recently in Beijing, such lettering has been painted over or prized out. By changing the design of Duan Jiaping's mosque, officials may hope to reduce Islam's profile, just as officials on the coast have been trying to make Christianity less visible by removing hundreds of large crosses from the tops of churches. In line with regulations issued last year forbidding the building of mosques that are overly tall, the new minarets in Duan Jiaping will be much lower. Mosques have also been ordered to install less powerful loudspeakers. Officials have stepped up efforts to keep children out of them and bar minors from religious instruction. The government's controls over Islam are still relatively relaxed in Lin Sha, compared with those in Xinjiang, where Muslims, if they are not thrown into vocational training centres, i.e. prison camps, are subject to intense digital surveillance, a heavy police presence and intrusions into their homes by prying officials. Many of Lin Sha's mosques retain their Arab-style minarets. Locals say they are cheaper to build than Chinese-style ones, which require skilled carpenters and expensive wood. Only a handful of mosques have so far been told to rebuild theirs, says a local Hui culture expert. Extremism, he says, has not become a trend locally. But the authorities insist it is spreading. In July, the leader of a central government inspection team said that in some parts of Gansu, religious extremist forces were already dominating and corroding grassroots political bodies. This was, she said, a problem worth attention. Extremist is a word that trips lightly off officials' tongues. It is often used to describe behaviour that in many other countries would be regarded simply as devout. Muslims in the rest of China may not suffer the Uyghurs' terrible fate, but they have reason to be nervous. And finally, proof has emerged that a quantum computer can outperform a classical one. In an article published in 2012, John Preskill, a theoretical physicist, posed a question. Is controlling large-scale quantum systems merely really, really hard, or is it ridiculously hard? Seven years later, the answer is in. It is merely really, really hard. Last week, a paper on the matter was, briefly and presumably accidentally, published online. The underlying research had already been accepted by Nature, a top-tier scientific journal, but was still under wraps. The leak revealed that Google has achieved what Dr. Preskill dubbed in his article Quantum Supremacy, 
Using a quantum computer, researchers at the information technology giant had carried out in a smidgen over three minutes a calculation that would take Summit, the world's current best classical supercomputer, 10,000 years to execute. A credible demonstration of quantum supremacy, which few disagree that the leaked paper represents, is indeed a milestone. It will divide the history of the field into two eras, a before when quantum computers were simply hoped to outpace even the best classical kind, and an after when they actually did so. There has been much talk, including in this newspaper, about the latter era. Now it has arrived. Google's experiment was circuit sampling, checking whether numbers their machine spits out, given random inputs, fit a particular pattern. This niche task was chosen to be easy for a quantum computer while still being checkable, just by a classical one. It does, though, confirm that quantum computers may in time be able to handle long-standing matters of practical importance. These include designing new drugs and materials, giving a boost to the field of machine learning, and making obsolete the cryptographic codes that lock up some of the world's secrets. Quantum computers employ three counterintuitive phenomena. One is superposition, the idea behind Schrodinger's famous dead and alive cat. Unlike classical bits, which must be either one or zero, qubits may be a mixture of both. Google's machine has 53 qubits, which between them can represent nearly 10 million billion possible superposed states. The second is entanglement, which ties quantum particles together across time and space. In standard computers, each bit is rigorously sequestered from the next. Quantum machines, like their qubits, entangled. Mathematical operations on superposed and entangled qubits can act to a greater or lesser degree on all of them at once. A quantum calculation starts by addressing qubits individually, making one of them mostly zero, say, and then entangling it with its neighbour by a certain amount. That done, it lets the rules of physics play out, with the qubit's states and linkages evolving over time. At the end, but not before, which would ruin the calculation, the qubits are examined simultaneously to obtain an answer. The trick is to maximize the chance of choosing the right answer instead of one of the zillions of wrong ones. This is where the third counterintuitive idea comes in. In classical physics, probabilities must be positive, a 30% chance of rain, say. Quantum mechanics uses a related concept called amplitudes. These can be negative as well as positive. By ensuring that amplitudes, which represent wrong answers, cancel each other out, while those that represent the right one reinforce, programmers can home in with high confidence on the correct solution. That is the explanation which textbooks present, anyway. In the laboratory, things are rather more difficult. Superpositions and entanglements are exceedingly delicate phenomena. Even the jiggling of adjacent molecules can interrupt them and sully a calculation. Most designs for quantum computers require the machines to be stored at temperatures colder than that of deep space and to be tended by a basement full of PhDs to keep things on track. 
no height of education or depth of cold, though, can altogether preclude errors creeping in. The biggest problem facing quantum engineers is how to spot and correct these, because most of the useful applications of quantum computing will require many, many more qubits than current devices sport, with a concomitant increase in the risk of errors. That has spurred a huge effort, both by well-known firms such as IBM, Intel, and Microsoft, and by an eager band of newcomers such as Rigetti to build better, less error-prone kit. There is also, in parallel with this race to build better machines, a race to develop useful quantum algorithms to run on them. The most famous example so far is probably Shor's algorithm. This is the piece of quantum turbocharged maths that allows rapid factorization of large numbers into their component crimes, and thus scares cryptographers, a group whose trade depends on this being a hard thing to do. But if quantum computers are really to earn their keep, then other algorithms will be needed. Developing them will be assisted by the fact that a lot of the proposed applications—drug design, material science, and so on—themselves depend on quantum processes. This indeed is why those applications have been so intractable until now. Despite the promise of quantum computing, many in the field are uncomfortable with the phrase "quantum supremacy," for it implies a threshold that, once crossed, leaves decades of existing computer science in the dust for something weird and wonderful. And for all the before and after that Google's paper represents, building practical error-corrected machines will be far from easy. It is therefore a mistake, most people think, to believe that quantum computing will replace the classical sort. The practicalities of low-temperature operation alone are likely to see to this. Governments, big firms, and the richer sorts of university will no doubt buy their own machines. Others will rent time on devices linked to quantum versions of the cloud. But the total number of quantum computers will be limited, and that will be fine. But it is worth bearing in mind a similar prediction of limited demand made in the early days of classical computing. In 1943, Thomas Watson, then boss of IBM, is alleged to have said, "I think there is a world market for maybe five computers." He was out by a factor of perhaps a billion. Thanks for listening to Editor's Picks. The stories you've heard are just a taste of what's inside this week's paper. With a subscription, you can read or listen to all of what we do. So please subscribe. Go to economist.com/radiooffer to get your first twelve issues for twelve dollars or twelve pounds. That's economist.com/radiooffer. Thanks for listening. I'm Josie Delap, and in London, this is the Economist. Capital One has a fresh take on banking. Now you can open a new savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Banking with Capital One means five times the savings toward your dream honeymoon, or five times the savings toward your family's ultimate vacation, even five times the savings toward just feeling good about saving. It's time to make your savings goals come true. This is banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC.